Morning, church. It's good to have you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 this morning. We'll be looking at the first 12 verses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that you are a giver of joy. That through the death and resurrection of your son Jesus, that you've brought new life to those who would believe in his name. We thank you and we praise you for your word. Thank you that we have freedom to partake of it, both here at church and nearly limitless everywhere else. Lord, we ask that your spirit would be, uh, would be alive and would be well in our hearts this morning. It would be full of, of truth and teaching. We would be moved and molded to the image of your Son. Thank you, and we praise you, and we pray this in Jesus' precious name. <clears throat> Again, John chapter 2 this morning. Uh, Starting in verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding about 20, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have have, uh, drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Again, God in heaven, we ask that your presence would be felt here this morning that we would be um, be ready and willing to hear what your word would have uh, have have to teach us. Lord, it's in your precious and holy Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I think at this point we have sufficiently gotten to the body of the Gospel of John. We talked last week, probably more than I should have, about how the beginning parts of the Gospel of John are kind of kind of unusual in their in their makeup and, and some it kind of seems like it's still part of the introduction and then kind of not there's some 
some bits and pieces from 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 what we would call intro and, and some and, and what we call body. But I think at this point we have sufficiently gotten to the body of uh, of the writing. One of the biggest reasons why we can say this is because this is where Jesus' ministry uh, begins. This is at least as John portrays it. This is the first thing that we see in Jesus' ministry. And for all four gospel writers, this is where the body of the letter, or the, excuse me, the gospel begins. Now, the reason why that matters to us is that it will shift our attention away from those kind of bigger picture, overarching ideas, now to the, to the more microscopic levels of the, the story progression. So it just changes the scope of what we're looking at. That doesn't mean that there's no information about Jesus. Like in the introduction, we're learning about Jesus. We're being introduced to Jesus. In the body, we're still learning about Jesus, just in a slightly different way. The most important thing that we need to do with this particular passage is get context. Um, for many people, the, this, this story is confusing. It's confusing. You kind of scratch your head. What, what is it here for? Why, why, does, why does Mary say this to Jesus? All, all these kind of questions. And, and, and I think the reason why it's confusing is not because it's actually a confusing passage, but rather that we are 2,000 years removed from the context in which it happens. And so we have to pay extra close attention to the context in order to understand what's happening and, and in order to guard ourselves from, from maybe misrepresenting what, uh, what John is trying to tell us through this story. So the first thing that we see in verse 1 is that it's on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The easiest thing to point to, Cana is about eight or so miles, uh, almost directly north of Nazareth, where Jesus uh, lives for most of his life. Uh, so it's a it's a neighboring city. It's it's one of the actually it's it's I think it's the second closest uh, town. Let's not call them cities because they're not cities. Next closest town to Nazareth. Second closest town to Nazareth. So it's so it's a neighboring place. Jesus and his family most certainly know people from Cana. It's likely when Jesus was growing up, when he was working with his father, he probably worked in Cana. It's, it's a familiar place. Now, that's easy. The first thing that we read is that it's on the third day. We could do two things from this. We could look back to verses 29, 35, and 43 of chapter 1, where John says, the next day, the next day, the next day, and we could think, okay, there's been one day, two days, three days, and then three days from then, that's when, it, that's when this wedding was. But more, like, more than likely, what this is actually referring to is probably the third day of the week, which is Tuesday. Sunday is the first, Monday, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, third day of the week. And it's also cluing us in to when in the wedding we are at, what point in the wedding we are at. Today... If you were to be invited to a wedding, uh, you're likely going to give up about half of your day if you're invited to the wedding. If you're part of the wedding, maybe the night before and the whole of that day, right? So maybe a day and a half at the most if you're part of the wedding. But for most of us, when we're invited to the wedding, a wedding's going to start, you know, anywhere from, from noon to three or four in the afternoon. You know, it's maybe 2.30 is when the wedding starts on the uptick of the clock or whatever all of our little thoughts are with, with how we should do our weddings. And, and you're going to have maybe a 30-minute ceremony, and then there's going to be the, 
Then there's going to be the pronouncement now introducing for the first time. And, and then you're going to have a little break. And the, and the bride and the groom and the wedding party, they're going to go take some pictures for four or five hours. And then you're going to eat. At least certainly that's what it feels like, right? You're going to, they're going to take some pictures and then they're going to come back. And then there's the reception. And the reception, we're going to, we're going to eat some food. Probably there's hors d'oeuvres or something before while the, while the bride and groom are taking pictures. And then, and then we're going we're gonna to have fun for you know, an hour or so while we eat and do the cake. And then you're going to dance a little bit. And then it's over. And that's the end of the wedding. right? It's, it's contained for most of us, for most people involved in the wedding, to one afternoon. Let's say six hours. Six, ten hours, something like that. Pretty contained. Now, this is absolutely nothing like what it was in the first century in a Jewish, uh, in a Jewish family. Uh, weddings in the first century were the thing to be excited about. There are a number of feasts that the people of Israel uh, participate in, and, and we'll talk about them in, in a little bit here. But there are a number of feasts that happen that are week-long celebrations. But by and large, you're really only going to participate in the festivities for very small portions, like Passover is a, a week-long festival, but really there's only two days where you're going to feast and you're going to have a good time. Okay, you're going to you're going to eat at the beginning and you're going to eat towards the end. It's not quite the end, but towards the end. And in the middle, you're going to eat unleavened bread. That that's really the only thing that changes in your day-to-day tasks. You're going to you're going to work most of the week. You're going to do all your normal stuff, and that's how it is for really all of the feasts in. Uh, in the Old Testament, but a wedding was different. A wedding was really the one time every probably couple of years where you were going to kind of let loose. Okay, you were going to have a, a, a great time, and you were going to have a great time for an entire week. You were going to take time off of work. You were going to you were going to go and you were going to celebrate with the bride and the groom. Actually, it was so it was so important to the to the first century Jewish culture that the bride and the groom would often wear a crown signifying that they were the bride and the groom and that they were the most important people there. This was a humongous and massively important event. Now, you're not inviting two, 300 people to this wedding. You're probably going to invite your family and, and, and some of your closest friends from the community, and, and that probably means almost all of your community. Nazareth is a tiny little town at this point, maybe maybe a hundred or so people. Likely Cana, and Cana is very similar, likely Cana is about that same amount of people. And you're going to have 50 to 100 people there. And for the whole entire week, you're going to have the ceremony at the beginning, and, and there's some other stuff that goes on we're not going to talk about, but there's, so the ceremony at the beginning of the week, and then you're going you're gonna to eat, you're going to drink, and you're going to be merry for the rest of the week. Okay, let's pause here for a minute because we're going to talk about some stuff here through this in order to get the context, and I want to make sure that my point isn't misconstrued. One of the reasons why some people can struggle with this particular passage is because when we think about a wedding, and we think about, or not a wedding, a party, Let's say it that way, because that's what the wedding was. It was a party. And if you think about a party for an entire week where there's going to be alcohol, which is what we think of when we think of wine, because there's alcohol in wine. Most people, our first, our first instinct is to think about the negative pictures 
that we've, we've either experienced or we've seen ex- ex- people experience things like uh, a party uh, with a bunch of high school kids who are, who are drinking, they're drunk, they're having sex, and they're making bad decisions. Right? And this is the first thing that we go to in our minds. And, 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 and it's sort of, we can, we can kind of justify it because we can look at other places in the Old Testament and we can see people like some of the kings in the Old Testament who had, who had parties for a month long and they were just drunken orgies. And we go, okay, is this what the wedding was? In a minute, Jesus is going to make somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons, gallons of wine. Okay, and so we're thinking about this party that's going to last a week and, and all this alcohol that's going to be consumed. And we go, it must be this raving maniac drunken orgy. But that's not what that's not what context tells us. That's not at all what context tells us. The first thing that we have to recognize is that there are two kind of distinctions of alcoholic drink in the Bible. There's wine, and actually probably better put just simply fermented grape juice, which we'll talk about again in a second, and, and strong drink. Now, strong drink is not what Jesus is making here. He's making fermented grape juice. Okay, And so in the first century, today, we have, we have perfected the art and science of winemaking. Right, to where we can go, I know that if I put these, the juice from these particular grapes in this particular uh, cask, I think that's the word for it, this particular cask made out of oak, it's going to get this certain flavor. And if I leave it in there for a couple, a couple months, I'm going to have 12.6% alcohol. And I, we have it perfected, and we put them in these, in these giant warehouses that are temperature controlled and humidity controlled, and we have it down to a, a science. That's not what it was like in the first century. In the first century, we have grape juice, meaning juice made from grapes. That's it. Not, no additives, no extra yeast, no temperature control, and just put into jars Maybe something similar to what Jesus is going to make the wine in. He's going to, he's going to, we're going to put it in jars, and it's going to be hot and humid, and it's going to naturally ferment, and it's going to pr- create a drink that probably has one, maybe two percent alcohol. Significantly lower amount of alcohol. Now, the reason why that's important, and the reason why I need to take the time to say this, is because if we think that what Jesus has made is 180 gallons of of of, of wine, and that that was then what was drank for the remainder of the week, we have to assume that everybody who was there, 50 to 100 people who were there, were, were not just drunk, but probably close to death, right? That's a significant amount of alcohol, and it's a significant amount for a person to drink nonstop. So that's not what is happening. And it's really important that we that we get that. Now, you know, sometimes we can come to this passage. We go, oh, we can. I can drink whatever I want. After all, Jesus made 180 gallons of wine. It's totally different today than it was then. It's completely different today than it was then. So, saying all that, we have this wedding. We're told that it's on the third day. Again, likely that's Tuesday, and that's likely the third day of the festival, the third day of the wedding week. Okay. Now that matters. That matters because of what Mary says to Jesus, what Jesus' mother, Mary, says to Jesus. It says that Mary is there, says that Jesus is there, it says his disciples are there, and then Mary comes to Jesus because the wine has run out. She comes to Jesus and she says, There's no more wine. 
There's no more wine. Now all of us go, who cares? But in the again, in the first century, at at a at a party that you probably looked forward to for a significant amount of time, probably the one time every couple of years that you're actually going to get a break from work, you're going to take time off, you're going to go to this place, and you're going to enjoy yourself. Now, this is where it gets... Don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. Even though the alcohol content is lower, if you consume 1% to 2% of alcohol in your glass of wine for the course of a week, you're going you're gonna to get, for lack of a better term, you're going to feel a little buzzed, right? It's going to be an enjoyable time. There's just no way around it, right? And so what, is, what, what ends up happening with the idea of a wedding, in the idea of serving wine at a wedding, is that all these additional these additional kind of ideas come along with the, 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 the picture of, uh, of grapes, winery, or not wineries, vineyards, and, and wine. In the Old Testament, there are a number of references to the people of Israel as being God's vineyard. And there are, again, a number of references in the Old Testament where, where wine or grapes, grape juice, is a symbol for, for prosperity and for happiness. Now, you just can't get around part of the reason why happiness, why wine is considered happy is, is what happens with alcohol. But the, but the bigger person, the bigger reason why that is, is because to have a vineyard and to have grapes in a dry climate is a pretty substantial, uh, it's a pretty substantial act. It's a pretty important thing that you've done. And it's, it's kind of one of the few things that tastes good outside of water, right? It's, it's this extra thing. It's this, it's this special thing that you're not going to get very often. And, and when you get it, it's going be, it's, it's to be better than everything else you've had, right? In a world where there's no added sugar, grape juice is going to be delicious, it's, right? It's, it's that simple. And so these pictures start to come along, start to come along with this. And, and in, in an event, a wedding that is, is the highlight of, of your life, if you're the bride and the groom, and you come to this place where, 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 where wine is being drunk and, and everybody's having a good time and everybody's, it, it's, all, it's all wonderful, to run out before the party is over was really very dishonorable. It wasn't a good thing. Right, and it's gonna it's gonna tarnish the bride and the groom for a good amount of time. And and so when we when we read this and we read, oh, they ran out of wine midway through the party, midway through the wedding, we're thinking, oh, oh, it's just a couple more hours. And we're, no, we're talking about probably four more days of this wedding feast that now, in essence, is over. I mean, not that people would necessarily have to leave once the wine is gone, but that's part of the reason why it's joyful. Now, the other part of the reason why it's joyful, and just briefly, the other reason why it's joyful is because we, we as people, we're, we're, kind of, we're kind of built with this, this desire or maybe need of, of interpersonal relationships, meaning other people trying to get, get with other people. And, and one of the reasons why 
in the Old Testament, every time something big happens, God commands a feast, is because those feasts draw us together. It's the reason why we, uh, every couple months, we have a meal here at Christ Church. You know, I joke a lot about how we all like to eat, and it's, it's, it's fun and good. It's really a very biblical idea to eat together, to fellowship around food. And so we have this feast, we have this wine that symbolizes joy and prosperity, and then all of a sudden it's gone, and it's going to be very dis- dishonorable to the bride and the groom. Of course Mary comes up to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. Of course they do. He does. They, she does, excuse me. This is a humongous, humongous problem for the bride and the groom. And likely Mary knows the bride and the groom close enough to where she cares about, about how people think of them. And then in verse 4, then, then in verse 4, Jesus says something that I think we probably all think as we read this. Why on earth does, does Mary come to Jesus and tell Jesus this? This is the first miracle that Jesus performs. Not, really, nothing, nothing in Scripture tells us that, that we should assume that Mary knows that Jesus is going to perform miracles. Nothing in the Bible tells us that Jesus performed any miracles before this. In fact, we're told right here that this is his first miracle. His first sign, which is the same thing, right? And, and, so, and so why does Mary come and tell Jesus this? What is, what is it about Jesus? Why does she... It's it probably because Jesus brought a number of guests. So Mary is invited, and then we see that Jesus is invited, and then we also see that his disciples are invited. Because Jesus has now stepped into the role of rabbi, he has disciples. And when you invite a rabbi to a party, when you invite a rabbi to a wedding or a feast, his disciples come. So by association, his disciples come. Now, we know that there are at least four of them at this point. There's, there's Andrew, there's Peter, there's Nathaniel, and there's Philip. We probably can assume that fifth, the fifth guy, the one that's unnamed, we talked about last week. But at this point, because this is the start of Jesus' ministry, it's probably actually all 12. So in a party that was going to maybe be 50 to 100 people, and now you have 13 people coming, that might be the reason why Jesus is asked to go get more wine. Because probably their fault, right? We didn't expect 13, 12 additional people. And I'm not saying that they were just drinking all the wine. I'm just saying... There's 12 extra people. There's, you know, 20 to 10 to 20 percent more people than maybe you expected. And, 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 and on, on top of that, you bring gifts, right? That's not a new thing that we do. The new thing that we do is we have registries and we buy people gifts for their marriage, not for the wedding. In the first century, you would buy gifts for the wedding, not for the marriage. You would bring food or you would bring the alcohol, or you would bring whatever. And so that might be why Jesus is asked about the wine, or why Mary tells Jesus that there's no more wine. But Jesus says something. He says, woman, first of all, it's not disrespectful. Okay, we call our mother's mother. Right? That's, that's our cultural, it's the thing that we do in our culture. And it's a thing that people do in lots of cultures. But in, we, we know that at least later in John, when Jesus is on the cross, he turns to, to John, our author, and he says, see this woman, She's now your responsibility. So in, on the cross, Jesus is taking care of his mother, and he calls her woman. It's not, a, it's not a sign of disrespect. It's simply the way you would communicate with, with each other. You would, would signify it. So he says, woman, what, what does this have to do with me? Right? This is exactly what we ask. What does this have? What is, why does it matter? What is Jesus going to do about it? Now maybe, maybe Mary thinks that Jesus is going to go buy some wine. 
But you should have brought more wine because you brought 12 people. Maybe. But maybe Mary has this just this extra something in the back of her mind going, I know that my son is special because at his inception, he, she was told he's special. At his birth, she was told he's special. At When he was 12 and he was in the temple, he was told he's special. Jesus, Jesus is special and Mary knows it. More than just how a mother thinks about their child, right? Every mother thinks their child is special. Jesus or Mary has something extra, and maybe that's what it is. But then Jesus says, my hour has has not yet come. Now, this wouldn't be confusing if in two verses, Jesus wouldn't actually do something about it. So when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, and then two verses later, he does something about it, that makes us scratch our head. Now, one of the reasons why this, I think, is here, and and we have to kind of look at the rest of the Gospels to kind of understand this more fully. If we study the whole of the Gospels, there's this this, uh, this doctrine, right? Doctrine that when Jesus is on earth and he's ministering, he's not just doing things willy-nilly, right? He's not just whatever whatever he thinks in this situation, I'm going to do that and that situation. That's not what's happening. In fact, it's really very much the opposite. That as Jesus goes through his life and goes through the things that he does, his miracles, the compassion that he has, eventually the cross, turning water into wine, this is all part of the plan. And it's not just part of the plan like, yeah, maybe I'll get to that, but it's part of a very specific and purpose plan. Really so much so that we might say that the hour has not yet come, the hour changes, and now it's time to go. Right, so so what what this kind of shows us is that Jesus isn't just doing things because it feels right in the moment, but he's doing things because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is moving him to do things. In Luke, we're told when Jesus is baptized, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. When Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be to to fast for forty days and to be tempted by the devil, that's not really Jesus' decision to do this. It was is the Spirit of God enacting enacting the Father's will, and the same idea kind of goes along with this. And Mary either doesn't care or who knows, and she tur- she turns to the servants. She says, "Do whatever he tells you. Whatever he says, go ahead and do it." And so then it says, now there were six, six jars, six stone water jars for the, uh, for the Jewish rites of purification, so cleanliness. Um, and it says they, they each held 20 or 30 gallons, and then we're told that he, Jesus says, fill the water, and they filled it to the brim. So one of the reasons why we, most people assume that it was 180 gallons was because they filled it to the brim. Let's just assume it was 120 it actually doesn't matter if it was 120, 180, or, or 10 gallons. The point is the miracle, right? The point is the miracle. And so he fills it up. They're the servants. They fill it up. And he says, now, now, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And somewhere along the, along the line, the water that was put into these jars turns into wine. We're not told about the moment. doesn't matter. She takes that, takes the wine, they take the wine, they take it to the master of the feast, who is just kind of the, he's the MC of the event. He's, he's, so he brings more wine out, bring more food out, whatever it is. If you have any questions, where's the bathroom? Go talk to the master of the feast. So they take it to him, he tastes the wine, and he goes, he calls the bridegroom, he calls, the, who's the groom, who's the, 
man of the hour. He calls him, he's like, he's like, normally people get the good wine first and then the lesser wine later. Now, what actually probably is taking place is that you start off with 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 undiluted water wine, right? So full wine, just straight grape juice that's been fermented. And then as the week goes on, as people have had their have had their drinks and, ha- and are feeling the effects of the, the little amount of alcohol that's in there, it becomes less and less important that that wine is, is tasty. Again, just no way of getting around it. And so what you would do is you would, you would kind of stretch that by adding water, and the more water you add, the less grapey it is, right? And so what I think this particular statement is actually telling us is that the miracle that Jesus performed was not diluting water and making more. You know, so a lot of people go to go to the scriptures and look at the and look at the miracles that Jesus performed, and they try to think of of logical ways that these miracles aren't real, right? Like the feeding of the five thousand. The feeding of the five thousand. One of the most popular disbeliefs of what happens there is that is that really a lot of those people actually had food. They just didn't want to get it out and share it until they saw the generosity of the boy. And because they saw the generosity of the boy, they decided to share the food. And that's why there is so much extra food. It's total garbage to think that it, Jesus performed a miracle. But that's kind of the same thing that happens here. Some people argue, well, no, it's not. It's not that Jesus made 180 gallons of wine. He took six jugs that already had wine in it. He filled it with water and there's more wine. But the master of the feast, he tastes it, and he's like, no, this is good wine. This is good wine. And that's the story. And it kind of seems out of place. And really, when you, can, when you, when you look at it in context, in literary context, look at it, the introduction versus what's going to happen, uh, what, what's going to happen when Jesus cleanses the temple, starting in verse 13, is that this story kind of stands by itself. Kind of stands by itself. And there's this fine line that we have to walk when we, when we try to figure out if we're supposed to read stories in the Bible allegorically, meaning that each little bit and piece has, has, a, has a, a, a meaning other than what it actually is. So we look at like the, the, the sower of the, of the seeds and, and the, the seed that's thrown onto, uh, onto the rocky soil are people who are, who are against hearing the word. And so they don't receive it, and there's nothing happens in them when they hear about Jesus. And the and the good soil, that's us, or that's people who hear the word and receive it, and then it grows in them, right? So there's that's what an allegory is. And and so there's this fine line that we have to go through to try to determine what an allegory is or whether we're supposed to read it more literally. And and, and I think this story has bits and pieces that show us that we're supposed to recognize that this is at least in part allegorical. And so Jesus does this that does this thing. He, he, he takes a situation that was going to end up poorly and he redeems it. Or, or maybe better put, the wine or, or the joy is starting to run out. And Jesus comes in and he performs a miracle and brings the joy back into this. And I think the, the number one reason why 
we can look at this and think about this a little bit more allegorically is verse 11. John tells us, and it's, it's actually pretty rare that, that John, our author, speaks in the gospel. Right, so, so most of the time, this is a story about other people, and he's just telling the story. Every once in a while, though, our, our, the, the writers of the Gospels will interject a, a thought. This is John speaking in this, to this story. He says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. He manifested his glory. Now, we can look back at the story and we can say, oh, Jesus performed a miracle. And that's manifesting his glory because performing a miracle is glorious. It's an act of, it's, it's an act of, of, of Jesus' glory. But, but I don't think that that's it. I think that this story has so much, more, so much more to offer us. As we think about our lives, we think about where we are before we know Christ. And that that, that something, right? That something that's just missing. And, and, and many of us, especially us who are believers, we, we can look back at our lives, we can look at, at, at ourselves before we knew Christ, and we can say, yeah, there was something. There was something, there was something that was missing. And those of you who don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, maybe you're not ready to admit it. But I think if you would examine yourselves, I think if you would think about your hearts and think about what's, what's happening in your lives, I think, I think if you're honest with yourselves, you might recognize that. You might recognize that there's something inherently missing in your life or something, something that just doesn't quite get us to the end of the wedding feast. The wine seems to be running out. But then here comes Christ. Here comes our Lord Jesus, the one who suffered and died on the cross, gave himself. It's, it's no accident that we, we take juice, grape juice, wine, to signify his death and his resurrection. This idea of, of joy and abundance and new life that comes with the idea of wine. It's no accident. What, what Christ offers the world and what... It, and so perfectly in this wedding, the symbol of, of us, the church, the bride of Christ, when he comes back, we're going to receive him as the, as the bride comes down the aisle. Right? If you guys, when the bride comes down the aisle, it's very, it's very Christian symbolism. It's very much Christian symbolism. The bride coming to meet its bridegroom. It's, it's going to be a joyous occasion. An occasion that we get to participate in right now. And so when Jesus turns the water into wine, yes, it's a miracle. It's wonderful. But when Jesus turns our hearts that are, that are just dead to life into joy, that's the manifestation of his glory. That's when we truly see who Christ is. So much so that it's, it, it, you can look at Christians, right? Look at Christians who are going through suffering, trial and hardship, who, who do not have happy lives, but are still joyful. Because it's something that Christ brings us, gives us because of his death and resurrection, a freedom from sin and death, and new life in him. It's a joy that we can't, as Christians, really explain. But once we receive it, right, we kind of go, oh, I get it now. 
manifests his glory. He brings us joy. And second, in verse 11, it says, and, he's, and his disciples believed in him. I think this is kind of the, the cap off of what we saw last week when, when Nathaniel, who, is, who was at one point, he was sitting under this fig tree, must have been thinking about something, and, and, and Philip says, hey, come, we found the Messiah. And, and Nathaniel comes, and Jesus goes, hey, Nathaniel, you were sitting under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, I believe you. And they're like, of course, why would you believe that? And you're the son of God, the king of Israel. And Jesus tells him something really, really important. He says, he says you you believe because I said I knew you under the fig tree, or I saw you under the fig tree, but I'm going to show you still greater things than these. Jesus shows us still greater things than these when he turns the water into wine. When he salvages something that was maybe faltering, he does so in our lives as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the new wine of your son, Jesus. We are grateful that this is not watered down, poor wine, but this is good and rich and delicious joy that is brought to us to the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus, freely offered to those who would believe in his name, would call upon him as Lord and Savior. It's in Jesus' precious name.